very small percentage that play the system. So don't focus on that small percentage. Please come out with me during lockdown. You'll go into a house where there's no carpet on the floor. There's deck chairs in the living room. There's a TV that's the size of a small Ford Fiesta. These poor young families in these areas of deprivation have got nothing, yet you're knocking us for giving food. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. You're listening to today's guest in his element. Docs, talk me through that finish. Out on the field supporting young people through football. And the world of football has been in the news this week with the Gary Lineker fiasco. He made some comments about the government's asylum policy. There was complaints. The BBC removed him from matches today. As we record this, they have now reinstated Lineker. No pressure, but can you make sure it goes in top bins? So, we talk about that with today's guest, who is well-known from the world of football. His name's James Edwards. He's worked in football development for a long, long time in the city. At the other end of football, really, a world away from the sort of millionaire, pampered sportsman that we sometimes see to the social conscience of the game. Community development, he works for the Robbins Foundation, which is the Bristol City wing of community sport. We also talked to him about the charity sector. Is there a class issue? Why are CEOs usually white and often posh? And working in deprived communities, how can we offer opportunities and pathways for young people to get to boardroom level? Bristol City, Robbins Foundation have been quite successful in doing that. And we talked to him about the methods they use and how we'd like to see other organisations in the city do similar. Enjoy. Hello, James. No, Max, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Where am I talking to you from? I know where I'm talking to you from. I'm in my head. Where, where are you talking to me? So I'm currently in a room at Ashton Gate. Ah, yeah, and you are, um, so you're number two, aren't you, at the, the Robbins Foundation, isn't it, yeah? It is the Robbins Foundation. I'm not number two, mate. I'm a lot further down the chain than that, but yeah. Are you? No, you're Robbins not. Let's say Robbins Foundation. Chris Stenner's going to be number two. Lovely guys, but when I go to meetings, it feels like I'm with half of the in-betweener. But yeah. yeah, they're the top honchos. And then you've got Polly, who runs the education. Yeah, and I slip between the cracks, mate, and just, yeah, do what I can when I can. So what's your official title now, then? Because you've been there. How long have you been there now? Quite a while. Yeah, I was a trustee for a good few years and then got actually involved working, I don't know, six, seven years ago. My title is Chief Development Officer. So make from that what you will, but it's got chief in it. So that sounds good. I mean, you've always have chief, you've always insisted on chief being in any role you've had, haven't you, in your title? Every year, I just Google what's the most powerful word to use in a title these days. Yeah, chief. I mean, full disclosure as well, we've known each other a long time. We've worked together in various guises over the years. And you're probably. Other than maybe one or two, even that, you're probably the last surviving um, sport development person that I know that's still working in that field. Mate, you've met, you've forgot about the head honcho, the leader, why we all do this. You forgot about him. He's still very much involved in this. Darren yeah. Gillett. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still about, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's not many. There's not many, though, is there? There's not many, no, I think. No. And it's quite interesting during lockdown, people, they, they were in their jobs and they're like, do you know what, James, I want to do something like you and do like a job that's like impactful and helps change people's lives. And you're like, oh, we can get you. And then suddenly like lockdown 
like everyone's out again and all of a sudden everyone's like no i need the money actually i need to pop <laughs> nobody cares anymore <laughs> yeah. no. my mortgage has gone up and then the cost of apple so yeah, yeah. It'd be nice, it'd be nice for a couple of days but yeah i'm gonna stick with me decent paid job so yeah but like we as you know we don't do this job for the financial benefits we do it for yeah making a difference and obviously we, we're the stabilizers all the young people and the people we work with have to do all the hard work mm. and we're there just to keep them on track and yeah help them stick their fees up to the society who's written them off for those that don't really know the kind of makeup of bristol city football club you're effectively the community wing of that but you're like a separate trust aren't you yeah, the official charity of Bristol City Football Club. So, yeah, we obviously the club do the elite side of it and they bring the players through and hopefully we'll get into the Premier League very soon. And that's their job. And our job is to go into society and work with those young people that maybe can't afford it or there's barriers in place for adults and young people. So we give people the opportunity to get involved with sport and fall in love with this beautiful game. And I want to talk to you a bit about Gary Lineker in a minute, but before we do that, this is a good opportunity for me and you to talk about our own football. I was often called the Maverick. Your nickname was the Enigma. <laughs> and um, you were at Chelsea, weren't you, as a kid? Yeah. As a, I'd have and, 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 uh, Let's move on. Let's move on. No, from no go, on, go on. I mean, yeah. is it right to say that they released you because they said you were too good for them? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a, it, I think that's why they brought Abramovich in because they couldn't afford, yeah, the figures I was chucking about, they, could, they couldn't afford. Mm. I don't think many clubs could. So, they yeah. Could contain I, your, I, this is a direct quote. Somebody said they couldn't contain his genius. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't want to talk about the past, but yeah, it's all true. Yeah, I was open to talk a bit about. I mean, I sort of trade off old war stories, really. I know, um, mate. If we if we do move on to the present, uh, and we'll talk a lot about what you guys did during lockdown, because I know you did a lot of work, and you actually for once got a bit of media publicity about this. It's quite interesting for me because I've known you've been doing different jobs within community and sport development for a long time, and it seemed to be that you were getting a little bit of personal recognition as well as obviously collective for the charity because of the deliveries you were doing during lockdown. And you, you made the Bristol Post call list, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember, what, num- what number were you? Don't be coy about it. What number were you? Can you remember? One or two. One or two. Definitely. One. No, definitely. One. I can't remember. There was about 60 people. So it took the gravitas a little bit away from it. Yeah. You were, but- you were above me because I was number 58. And I was and I know that because I was one above Adam Tutton at Bristol Rovers. who was number 59. If you'd have read the post, it wasn't actually about me. It was about the Robbins Foundation. Oh, stuff stop all that. Doing, stop so, all that. So, no, I know. Yeah. But you, would, you got a little bit of publicity, which was good. Then they did it the following year and they reduced it to the top 40, right? And I didn't make it at all. Did you? No. Outrageous. No. Yeah. That was the, yeah. I mean, the irony is people think this is the top sort of 60 most coolest people, 40 most coolest people for Bristol. Like, everyone gets really excited by it and it's all over Twitter and Facebook and people are pissed off that they're not in it, celebrating if they are. Like some quite big names from Bristol. And I think they think it's there's, there's this panel of loads of people and there's this sort of objective criteria and it goes through. It's one journalist who decides that. Do you know that? And I know who he is and he's a friend of mine. And half of those, he's messaging me going, who can I get in from Southmead? Or who's down at Rovers that you think is quite cool now? I thought it was Joe Sims making them decisions because he seemed to be in every single category you're going. He does, but he wasn't in the top 40 at the last one, actor Joe Sims from Broadchurch, Yeah. He wasn't in it, and I did tweet him saying, this is outrageous, what are you going to do about it? But he ignored it, so I don't know if he was a bit annoyed. But no, he didn't make it in that one, which is slightly controversial now. But he does get in, he does get quite a lot of coverage, admittedly. Let's quickly just talk about Gary Lineker. As we record this, it's just been announced literally about two hours ago that the BBC have climbed down and will allow Gary Lineker back on Match of the Day on Saturday and will revise his social media usage. For those that don't know, Gary Lineker made a tweet specifically around the government's migration policy around boats, 
which was criticised by some quarters for reference to 1930s Germany. The government didn't like it. Sangsner looks like they leaned on the BBC. The BBC took him off air and said he will not be presenting Match of the Day. He's violated his contractual conditions and social media and violated BBC's impartiality. And subsequently, every single sport, initially it was Match of the Day, pundits Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, Mika Richards, Jermaine Jenis. Then it was the Radio 5 presenters. Then it was the commentators. And the only thing they put out on, I don't know if you saw it, James, on Saturday night was 20 minutes highlights with no commentary, no punditry, on Saturday. And that was a bit weird, wasn't it? Did you think? It was weird, but it was the first match of the day in years that I've, I was awake for the whole episode. As I'm yeah. getting old, it was always been me love. Like, I have struggled to stay awake for them like the last couple of games. But the whole, the Gary Lineker thing, like, it, it's beautiful, Neil, and it's what we've been banging the drum for years about. So this isn't about what, if you believe or don't believe in what he was saying and mm-hmm. the, the reason he was doing this stance. This was him just going, do you know what? For many years, we've been made to listen to the media and the people that are behind the media. We believe everything the media said. This is him who's worked hard all his life, got himself onto a platform, been mm-hmm. elite at his sport. He's made a platform for himself and he just disagrees with some of the decisions being made. So this is beautiful, regardless of what like I said. What, what the response what, was beautiful. It was like Spartacus, wasn't it? It was like a sort uh, of media sport football sort of revolution unfolding hour on hour, day on day. That was beautiful. But Gary Lineker making that stands a beautiful thing, regardless of right, what okay. it yeah. was. Let me ask you about that, because, you know, we've been in and around community development, which is a lot. is about trying to dispel myths from people in the community. You've worked in South Bristol, which is predominantly white working class area, where you might get people who maybe have a slightly more negative attitude towards migrants or refugees. And presumably you would have had to have had difficult conversations with parents or young people to try and nudge the envelope a bit to make people a bit more understanding over the years. So something like that resonates with you, yeah? Yeah, mate. The interesting thing is that there's like, I think young people in schools are getting better education. So Mm. in households and areas of deprivation where we work, during lockdown, when we come out of the other end of lockdown, there was more racist incidents than we'd had in the last four years and really? the comments the right. young people were saying were things that had been passed down from generation they didn't even understand what they were what they meant by what they were saying you could just see it's what they'd learned what's been in lockdown with all the negative comments so what uh, repeating stuff they've heard their parents say or stuff online or whatever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely and and some of the things they were saying it was you sat there going do you know what that means and the young people are like no well, i've heard my granddad say it or my dad say it in the house and you're like you could see that there, that lack of education. Is that because, um, sorry to jump in, that's because they would have spent more time around relatives because they were in the house as well and yeah, not at school. Absolutely. Yeah, right, absolutely. Okay. Yes, yeah. all the things they were picking up on saying. And it's, but we, like I said, that, that bang in the drum, and we've been working there as a deprivation for years, and the media have been putting the negative slant there as a deprivation, but we work in it. And mm. mate, I've had so many, even people I used to go to school with that have gone into different vocations and, and maybe work in a factual day, and they come back, and I had an argument with one guy that works in a factory. It's basically, we, we were doing the free school, obviously the food drops during lockdown, and he was saying, why should the kids be getting free school meals? And I said, regardless of like all the situation, these young people are going hungry. And he was like, yeah, but the parents shouldn't have, the usual stereotype, the parents shouldn't have, or they shouldn't have had them. I was yeah. like, okay, so the mum I'm working with at the moment is a 25-year-old mum with three kids, was an abusive relationship, the husband's got put in prison because of it. Yeah, yeah. she made that decision. Yeah, brilliant. But there's three kids here that, that can't get access to food during school holidays. She shouldn't have had them. Now, I understand that, mate. I've had this conversation with you. I get you're coming from, <laughs> but take her out of the picture. There's three kids go, well, it's a referred to sort out. You're, like, you're just banging your head against this brick wall going, please, before you make these assumptions about the racism, about the age of deprivation, about these young people, come out with me. 
come out with me on the front line and meet these people. You, you see the benefit streets on the TV where they would yeah. put them in a negative light and they said, they've got better TVs than we've got. And they go on more holidays. You go, there's a small percentage. It's a yeah. very small percentage that play the system. And people play the system, every system there is in the world. So don't focus on that small percentage. Please come out with me during lockdown. You'll go into a house where there's no carpet on the floor. There's deck chairs in the living room. There's a TV that's the size of a small Ford Fiesta in the corner of the room, which like people don't think still exists. Yeah. These people, these poor young families in these mm. areas of deprivation have got nothing. Yet you're knocking us for giving food. You come from that area yourself. You've got professional networks, but friendship networks with people that are that live or have done better themselves from deprived communities, and sometimes they're like the most intolerant people, aren't they? That like yeah. like you said about friends I know that are now chippies or plasterers or fact working factories. They're sometimes, and it really frustrates me. They can be the most ununderstanding of people on the wrong side of the tracks, even though they come from that themselves. Yeah, they feel they don't need to help out because they've done all right. Yeah, say, You're all- what do you say to someone like that? And anybody listen, how do you? What's the best way to challenge them? I guess what you just said really is they need to see it to believe it, don't they? Honestly, in all the projects, so a lot of our projects we deliver, and obviously football is this beautiful tool that we use to engage with these young people and all the projects we write, most of which will come from young people. When the young people bring up what the issue is, we will go out and we will live in that issue and we will understand it. Mm. There's so many projects, as you know yourself, the funding becomes available, people write bids, don't really know what they're getting into. They're just chasing the money. So before we do any of that stuff, we go in and we understand those communities and we usually get those communities to write our projects for us. But there is that. It may, it's just the lack of education. It's the lack of, I come home for work. I live in my own bubble. I turn on the TV. Who cares if my neighbour can't afford to eat? Yeah. So on Lineker then, good that he said what he said. And we've had this with Rashford as well. You mentioned about holiday hunger, which is something that he pioneered. Now it seems to be the role of football, which we were involved in a long time ago in the early days of community departments, trying to get football to understand some of these social issues and the role that it can play in that because people listen to footballers and it's a huge and it's the most popular sport in this country. Suddenly now we've got like a sort of new generation of pundits and a new generation of footballers that are prepared to put themselves, even the Black Lives Matter stuff, taking the knee, the young lads in the England squad. There seems to be a little bit more of a social and political sense now from footballers and football. Yeah, but I think personally it's all down to social media. I think that... That being born uh, and took the power away from the elite people that can control what people learn and what people yeah. believe. I think now, you, 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 like the Rashfords, what sort of society do we live in when a guy who's done well for himself, a young guy that's gone, I can buy any house, I can buy any car I want, I can go and be really flash with my money. It's made the decision to go, actually, there's kids going hungry, so we need to support them, and then gets mm. vilified for that. And gets made out to go, won't you concentrate on your football? Like, how, What sort of world do we live in where that decision, why isn't that person been put on a pedestal to go, this is what people, successful people should be doing? Yeah. Remembering their roots and going back and supporting them communities. Going back to what you said earlier, a lot of the businesses that I work with within the areas of deprivation, if people have done well from these areas, are the supportive ones. They are. Okay. Are the supportive yeah. ones and they will give in to our projects and they will support the projects we do. I've met so many very wealthy people in Bristol. Those self-made wealthy people, you mean, that have become yes. wealthy, yeah. Yeah, on the other side of it, so people from affluent areas that have done well and made money that do it and say, what's the benefit for me? Like, what am I getting out of this? Do I get sponsorship? Do I get publicity? And you think people from areas of deprivation go, here's some money because it's the right thing to do. Like, mm. not because they want something out of it, and that's charitable, but when you get these people come in, yeah, they want something out of it. The more wealthier people, when you go, well, hang on a minute, this isn't right, this yeah, the only exception to that for me is John Lansdowne, who's been obviously John Lansdowne, the chairman of Bristol City Football Club and a trustee of our charity. And he has always said right from day dot, why are you doing these projects? 
And if it's about money, he'll go, no, tell me why. Tell, do a project where it's about what people need in Bristol. So yeah. he has gone against the mould and broke the mould a little bit because he has always championed the do the right things. I was going to get onto that, but since you since you brought it up, we might as well know. I know you've got a quite you've got a good relationship with John, and you've always spoken really highly of how he supported the aims of the community side of Bristol City, and yep. you've been on quite a journey with them for the football club to recognise the community department. I think this is not just exclusive to Bristol City. This is definitely Bristol Rovers. And I've done work across the region with other football communities, Exeter, Plymouth, Cardiff, Newport, Swansea. They are, it's all the same. And I think it's probably the same nationally. 20 years ago, a community department was an ex-pro that had a game of golf by lunchtime, went to the old people's home in the local primary school, and that was it. It was done. That's massively changed now, isn't it? We were involved in really early conversations to, to... convince football clubs to give more emphasis to community departments. Now they are million pound turnover charities, a lot of them. It's become like a really big role played and a big importance for the football club as well. And and from your perspective, someone like John Lansing's played a strong role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to your point earlier about media and football. I think football's such a powerful beast that everyone's been able to use it for their own benefit now. And I think years ago, yes, it was an ex-pro, but I think they're always very detached from the football club. So the football club were there to get the first team as good as possible and to bring money in through the turnstiles and to be able to pay for stuff. I think then they went through a period of the charities were there to put bums on seats. So the more people you can engage with within the community, the more people that buy season tickets. And then obviously with John Lansdowne's involvement and the sort of new direction we went in, it was, no, we'll find out what Bristol needs. We won't chase the funding anymore. We'll get young people, our youth council, which which were recognised nationwide for these young people from areas of deprivation that were going, no, 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 what we need is this and this. And they designed the projects and then we have to get off our butts to go and get funding. So yeah. I just think the football is such a powerful tool. But my point about the ex-pro thing, James, is like, that, so there's two things to that. I think one is that, yeah, it's, it's not an afterthought, a community department now. It's just a bit no. of a nice fluffy thing you do once in a while. It's central and pivotal yeah, to, to, to a football club and to do not just for PR and not just, as you just said, to get more bums on seats in the stadium, actually to make some kind of difference. But yeah. also the type of people that are recruited to run community trusts now it used to, the reason they used to give it to the ex-pro because it was like really just let him do it without any really yeah, understanding yeah. or knowledge or experience of community development. Whereas people like people like yourself and various others come from outside a football club to come in with a particular knowledge and expertise of your specialist deprivation areas. Actually, that whole sort of community development, youth worky type bit that yeah. really, to be frank, and I used to work with the most ex-professional footballers don't really get or understand yeah. Yeah, and I think from any perception, people listening to this now would probably was thinking the same thing, that we don't need football coaches. So historically, you would get the old pro that would come in and he would want a level two coach to go out and take to teach level two football in groups with young people to make them better footballers. That's not what we're about anymore. So the big shift for us was when people are applying for jobs now. It's not level two, it's potentially youth work qualifications. Mm-hmm. Because when you go into an area of deprivation, your job is to go in there with a bag of balls, but like across our whole organisation were relationship building strategy, not a football coaching company. So it comes, so football our, comes second, really, to the actual ability to be able to connect with young people. Yes, absolutely. People will come because we're playing football. Like that, that, that hook will always be there. It's what we do whilst we're at those sessions. So mm. when we're at those sessions, we're meeting the young people and one opens up that, I don't know, there's abuse at home or whatever that situation is, we are then qualified or innate, we're enabled to help that young person get onto a different pathway. 
One of our projects at the moment we've got is we've, and I know you would know of the name Jade Bailey in South Bristol. Jade Bailey has had lived experience of being involved with all sorts of stuff from gangs to guns to drugs to, to weapons to, yeah, and she's had a lot of grief in her, her lifetime. She's turned her back on all of it and she's now working and mentoring a young person. So when a young person says, oh, I bought this bag of weed for five, 20 quid for whatever it is, she'll then go back. So that's quite expensive. You're probably the third person down the line. And yeah. the young person's like, how do you know about this world? So straight away, that young person's got a connection. Whereas, as you know yourself, in the past, when we've seen mentoring projects come from different areas and you get a young person to come out of university trying to engage with these young people and, and it falls down straight away. But yeah. with, if you get the right people, like all of these projects, if it's wrong by the wrong people, it won't work. You have yeah. to get the right people to be able to engage. So you would you would recruit people for courses from the area, train them up, send them back out into the communities or similar communities where they're from to deliver to young people like they used to be. Yeah, apart yeah. from your first bit where you said recruit. So we will be doing our social inclusion sessions in those areas. They would come along to it and maybe be saying they're dropping out of school and all's gone and then we signpost them into our education programme. Yeah. Um, and that's, like a community, that's a sort of, in a way, that's like a good old-fashioned community development model, talent pathway, career pathway for young people, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? It, it sounds really obvious, but you try and find another organisation in Bristol that we'll be working with at the age of six and mm. then already have that relationship when they get to teenage years, when they go off maybe yeah. a little bit off the side and then we call them back in. Then we say, right, do you want to come on to our education full time and then come in to volunteer with us? So yeah, we've got a, we've got a really good model at the moment that's working really well. And as I said, 50% of our delivery team yeah. are young people that have come through our system. Let me just go back to the money thing just briefly. So the whole thing around income generation, it's obviously you need to be financially sustainable, but I would imagine as a charity, you mentioned John Lansdowne, who's the chairman, obviously the son of billionaire Steve Lansdowne that would have limitless funds. I mean, presumably you didn't really need to be making loads of money anyway, did you? And yeah, and this is the um, this is the 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 brush we yes we hear it quite a lot. So we don't get anything financially from the football club. We don't want to, and we don't want to be seen. The charity is asking for handouts. So we are the we've never in the last how many years we've been doing this ever asked for a handout. So all we get from the club is the support from John Lansdowne. We've got a couple of other trustees that are yeah. linked to the club. If we need tickets, they'll provide us with tickets. If we need players to come out and support our project, they'll send the players out. But the model we change to, which many charities still do where they chase the money, regardless of what that money's for, it might be relevant in Liverpool, but they'll still chase yeah. the money and pretend it's relevant in Bristol. We get the young people to write these projects. And once the young people have written the project, we have to get off our butts and go and get that funding. So mm. it's harder work for us, but it's the right thing to be doing. So financially, we, we aren't... Yeah, we aren't asking for any handouts from the football club whatsoever. So where We've does your money support. come from then, James? Where do you get most of your funding from? The corporates. Corporates, we go out to companies. We get a lot from the EFL, from the Premier League to be doing the projects we run. Obviously, we've got the education side of things as well. So we work in partnership with a couple of education providers. But mate, it is, it's hard, but we have to be writing 10, 15 bids a month to get the money right. in, which yeah. we're doing. And obviously over the years, it was really easy. Then it become really hard and, and the purse strings got tighter and tighter. And we've, and I, at the moment, I can't tell you who it is because we've got a confidentiality thing in place, but we've got £320,000 from an organisation that's gone, your mentoring project with Jade is really important. We want to back that and support it. So that's a huge so you're amount. So you're not, you're not, you, you, to, to live that in the bud then, if people sort of think that you're not like bankrolled by the Lansdowne's given money. No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And I think the last time we did this, for every pound that someone puts into that bucket on match day, 80p of that goes to the frontline delivery. 
So we're not a charity that's pretending to do charitable stuff or a CEO who's earning 200,000 pound a year. It's very small gaps between all the levels of staff at the Robbins Foundation. And because we're doing that and, and the employment of the right person is so important, Neil, it's they've got to understand the reason they're doing this job is to build relationships with many hard to reach young people and yeah. across the board from education to community delivery. And you've been quite got, heavily, I know you've tried to downplay your role. And I also know that you've been quite pivotal in changing the culture there and creating, as you said, a team of people with lived experience, with local knowledge, upskilled, with the right kind of attitude. And that's something that you've been quite pivotal to doing. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, yeah. I think, and I think you'll, I think you'll agree with this. Like when we were, we used to talk about it before, we'd go into meetings with a load of suits and me and you would have tracksuits on. And it's imposter syndrome type thing where the people in suits don't listen to you because you're wearing a tracksuit. You're on the front line delivering the stuff. And no one really listens to you. And then as you get a bit older and you stay in this industry, the big turning point for me was I was in a multi-agency meeting with a young person that was getting up to all sorts of stuff in Noel West. And yeah. we had a multi-agency meeting and someone went, James, you do a football session for an hour in Noel West. And I was like, yeah, yeah, can we send him to you? And I was like, yeah, of course you can. And they went, right, should we all go for lunch? And I sit there thinking, do you think that's going to change? <laughs> that You've all ticked a box to say you've got this young person in positive provision but you're not really changing that young person's life. You're just ticking off your box so you can go for lunch. Like it was that turning point for me to go, yeah. do you know what? We've been working this long enough now to make a bit of a stand and go, no, that's not good enough. Like, mm. Get back in and now, put that baguette down, get back in and now, and let's put a program together of how we can work with that young person for more hours than that young person spending in the negative environments. Which we're you home. are one of the only people though. I mean, I've changed careers, but, but partly for one of those, but that reason as well, that kind of there is, it's very hierarchical. And I would get to sergeant major kind of level and that would be the sort of glass ceiling because that's how you're seen. You're seen as a foot soldier, aren't you? You're seen as somebody that, that can engage with young people, can connect with, like, connect with people from a state so, you know, that you kind of have a shared experience. And the tracksuit, it was almost like, it was like the tracksuits and the suits. And I do wonder whether that's changed now, because you're one of the few people that has progressed all the way through and hasn't had to change to do so. Yeah, do you accept that? Would you say that? I think you, yeah, that, I, 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 that's quite rare, I think. I know you don't yeah. like talking about yourself, but it is quite rare. Yeah, and I, I think, and I give it back to John Lansdowne, he was a powerful figure that got it. So it, we went, like I said, about getting involved in the session when I first met with him. I said, if you really want to understand come out into the community and he came out every day for six weeks, raining, sunshine. He was the first one there. He understood it and got it. And then he become one of our, like not a cheerleader because it was his organization. So with his power that I've never really had before is someone powerful that understood it. You had somebody he'd behind then, he'd that. Yeah. it. And we'd go, this is wrong to be doing that. We need mm. the money over here. And he'd mm. go, well, if that's when it should be, we should be supporting that session. That's really interesting. That's really interesting then, because obviously you can't shy away from the fact that they live in Jersey. He does He's avoiding tax. His dad, hey, John, yeah, I know. Talk about John lives yeah. in Bristol, but as a, for those that may be politically opposed to all that sort of stuff, but, that he is a self-made guy, isn't he? He comes from a humble beginnings and working class background. And I can imagine that someone like probably John, even more than Steve, really, would get people that what the people were talking about, social climbers in suits, would probably get a bit cynical about that. Would you wouldn't always know whether somebody was being genuine to you? Yeah. Because yeah. where you come from, whereas I know what you're like, you'll just talk to people straight. And he probably thought, oh, right, I can trust this guy. Actually, and actually we come from here. Our family comes from that. Yeah. So yeah. we need to change how we do things. Do you know what I mean? I think, yes, it was for you, it's important to have a powerful ally, of course. But I think he probably saw some of that authenticity that was maybe missing. 
Yeah, and I never really talked to him about football either. And I think a lot of people talk to him about football. But I think yeah. it's the Rashford effect. Again, you've got Steve Lansdowne, who's a self-made successful businessman, right? Who's a Bristol guy who's investing ridiculous amounts of money into giving Bristol the best sporting opportunity he can. Yet you still got people like banging yeah. a drum going, well, he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Like what possible mm. wrong reasons could that be? Like more people going to beautiful sporting arenas and then you've got John Lansdowne banging a drum going, right, we need to be doing the right thing with the right people. Like yeah. it, That's the society we live in. Like People aren't going to support people doing well and doing the right thing because we've got this negative approach to society to go, anyone's doing as well, supporting it, we should knock them. This is the advert bit, so feel free to zip on if you like. But those who haven't heard and don't know anything about the cable, stop and just quickly listen to this. We are a cooperative, and uh, that means we're a membership organisation, and you can become a member. And that basically means you sign up from the website and you chuck some money in each month. It could be anything from a pound, five pound, ten pound, whatever you can afford. And you get a chance to have a say in meetings, AGMs, uh, put forward suggestions for articles we can write, guests for this show, anything really. The media needs a bit of a kick up the backside in this city and uh, and wider. So this is a chance to actually get off the fence, get off the sofa and uh, have your say. Back to the chat. I want to talk about the culture of um, the charity, the uh, third sector stuff. We touched on it around the edges a bit. There's a good book by Darren Garvey called The Distant Between Us, which basically calls out the whole charity sector and the community sector. He's, he's from one of the schemies, like council estates in Glasgow, and just says there's people that he sees, middle-class professionals that have made a career out of poverty. Have you seen that in uh, your 20-odd years of working in community development in Bristol? <laughs> Do you know what? I went to an event, when was it, a couple of months back, and I took Jay Bailey with me. We had a young person stood up. And I, he'd got a lot, paid a lot of money to come and do one of these, like, I don't know what you, what you would call it. He'd stand up and do a talk about his life. And he's, he's really well spoken. And he basically, from what I understood, he smoked a bit of weed once in his University of Oxford. And now he's turned his life around and he's got a full-time job. And I do, you, you listen to these stories and I would, like, you, you want Jade Bailey up there. But- Where race and disability and gender was on the sort of, was a zeitgeist thing that people were addressing in community development. Suddenly class is bubbling up now a bit more, isn't it? And people are faking yeah. their credentials. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe not false. And he might have had a really bad experience. But what I'm saying is I find the people that are really good at this, jo- this these jobs, working with these young people, are good at working with these young people. When it comes to doing public speaking, when it comes to coming into an office, when it comes to coming into a meeting, when it comes to talking out loud in front of adults, struggle. But what yeah. they're good at is working with the young people. When I used to work for the council, not for council, for Positive Futures many years ago, a lady was, came in Just to those who know, which was a council-funded sort of sport and young people initiative, go on. Yes, so working in Norwest still, and a lady came in and said, we need to be able to record youth club engagement because we haven't got anything at the moment. So what they did, they employed a lady to come in and start up a youth council. And she said, who wants to be part of a youth council? And you had all the academic kids put their hand up, right? The kids that were the true reflections, no, didn't Mm. put their hand up because they didn't have confidence. So what happened was these academic kids decided that every young person that walked through the door in in South Bristol youth clubs had to fill out a workbook, Mm -hmm. right? So a written document about what they were going to do at the youth club, how they got on the youth club. So what you had is kids coming to youth clubs that didn't want to do academic stuff because they hate it at school then having to do it at a youth club. So what happens is young people stopped going to youth clubs. Yeah. So because people, young people stopped going to youth clubs, when the council did an audit, there was hardly any people at youth clubs. So they closed the youth clubs. And you look back, you go, the young people that we work with wouldn't step forward to be part of a youth council. So when we start our youth councils, we headhunt the young people. We, we headhunt the kid that's just broken into a court. 
And mm. we sit down with him and say, right, every week we want to meet with you and we're going to discuss how we're going to make it accessible for you and all your mates to come and play sport. Mm. So you see this, you have to think outside the box and you have, you to, have be to be intentional, don't you? It takes a certain type of young person to want to do that type of stuff anyway. I don't think I would have done it that age, but it, they definitely need a bit of support and a, a bit of kind of a mentoring. The wider point I want to touch on is just a bit around this sense that it, the those that get paid the most and those that are in senior positions working in areas of deprivation are usually middle class and are usually white. Yeah, Has that so, been your experience? Because it's definitely been my experience. And I just wonder if that needs to be challenged more. I'm going to park that comment and I'm going to go back to the one you just said at the beginning, right? Yeah. If your football coach would have said to you at the time, Neil, what are the issues in that area? I reckon you would have opened up and said what his issues were. So you said about your kids need the confidence and need to step forward to do yeah. it. If they've got a relationship with someone straight away, right, already, okay. Okay. Yeah. they won't yeah. need to do it. So I don't think there is that, not all kids could do it, or I think all kids could do it if they're given the opportunity and support with the right relationships. Yeah, yeah, so that's what enough. you said. What I lack is going to meetings and hearing people with rough accents like me. Mm. When I get to meet managers of schemes i do agree with what you're saying a lot of times they will bring in your shiny i call them johnny bravos that go hi i know how to run a charity you need to listen mm. to me give me your money it's safe and yeah. i think i honestly think the world is changing now and, and it is changing subtly slowly that used to happen with race you know you used to just to get a lot of posh white people going and telling people in eastern and st paul's how you're supposed to live now yeah. people would be quite uncomfortable about that wouldn't they they would see that as what would be called sort of cultural appropriation or sort of colonial patronizing kind of thing you, do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm a white guy that's worked a lot in multicultural kind of communities, but I'm kind of from there, so it's a bit different. Talk about people completely without any sort of understanding, knowing better. So now it's the same principle, but to do with class, isn't it? You've got people yeah. that have no real understanding. One of the real problems with this kind of work is that those that are often the best at engaging face-to-face -face and doing that support stuff you said aren't always the best with some of the paperwork that's needed now, the increasing amount of KPIs that you have to do for funding bids and all that stuff. How do you get around that? Because that's yeah. always been a block for people moving through organisations. Yeah, so that's, that's been one of the biggest frustrations for me, Neil, personally. And I know you've probably experienced similar. So I remember doing the frontline stuff and being told the only way I can make more money is if I stopped doing the frontline stuff and yeah. I went into an office all day and started writing bids. So at the time yeah. when I was given that option, I preferred doing the frontline work with the young people because at the time I didn't need the extra money. I was a lot younger and I didn't have any sort of outgoings as it was. And I enjoyed doing that. But the only option for me was to give up what I was good at and then go and do stuff in the office, which I, which I hated doing at the time. I hated read or writing. I hated it from school. I still hate it now, but it's part of the job you have to learn and yeah. get through. And, and the only way you could progress up an organization is to change what your skill set is, which I think is absolutely bizarre. So here at the Robbins Foundation, it is something we're working on and we're changing. So if the option is for a project manager who's really good at delivering, then has to go into the, to the room and write bids, we'll bring in a bid writer. So on a part-time basis, these people come in and their speciality is writing bids. Yeah. And then the people delivering on the front line can yeah. earn more and work hard and develop their skill set rather than have to change yeah. their whole skill set. Do you think more young people or, sorry, I guess apprentices that go in to do delivery work should be supported to to use their skills in other ways, chairing meetings, 
presentations, upskilling them to become a CEO or to become a senior manager. Because it's a bit of a roundabout, I think. It's a bit like the Western League in football. It's sort of like once you're in it, you just bounce around from one club to the other, don't they? That's what happens yeah. with charity. They go, they work for one, then they go to another one. And actually, what you don't see is people coming through. Is that something that you would like to see a bit more of? And is there any reason why that can't happen? Well, I think there's two points to this. The first one is we've got a girl called Grace Phillips at the moment. She now runs our women's and girls part of our organisation. And she was one of our youth councils who engaged with us from the age of nine, ten. She's now full-time with us. She's running our women's and girls project. She's going into schools. She's telling yeah. schools about the project she runs and the schools are buying into her project. So this is a young girl that's learning all these life skills about going and doing presentations, about going and building relationships, not only with the young people, but doing the adult stuff as well. And there's no doubt in my mind that she will go on and become an amazing CEO. And that's, mm. that's a young person who was probably written off by society a little bit. And she's now gone, no, 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 these are some projects we need. But mm. the other side of it, you've got things like, is it the Kids Club? Was that the charity? that Kids oh, Company. Kids, Kids Company. They went bust, yeah. So you've got people like that out there. And when it does come to light and the charities go, and the charity was probably brilliant and it was probably started up for the right intentions. But when you get one of those bad apples, then everyone's perception of charity changes a little bit. And yeah. there's always a little bit more of people going, yeah, where is that money going? So it is hard when you've got charity, when you're trying to do the right thing, when you've got charities around you, not. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting. Even if you've raised a kids company, that's a really good example because lots of people outside the sector were like, oh my God, that's a disgrace. You know, they should be supported. They're being torn apart. They're being used as an example of what a great thing they were doing that the whole sort of world's going to collapse because they're no longer delivering it. Yeah. I've been on two courses that, and I've met, I can't pronounce her surname, Camilla, whatever her name, I can't pronounce it. Yeah. And yeah. she runs her, you run that charity like a cult. And I was really uncomfortable on this training course and met her and people just were around her. Like she was this like leader, this visionary, and she was coming out with stuff and they were dropping on her every word. And I was like, this is just ABC stuff. I know this is, I didn't fall for it at all. And they were giving kids money. Kids were going around, yeah. young people were going around people's houses. So actually when that happened, that, they were funded by big philanthropists, friends of like high in high places in London, famous people, musicians. It was all odd and all a bit weird. And yep. it was nothing particularly radical that me and you have never done and seen. So when they went bust, I had an uneasy feeling about it anyway. And I was quite pleased, if I'm honest. Not pleased for the young people was good effect, but I was quite pleased that they got found out as, as shysters, if I'm honest. Yeah. But there might have been some really amazing people working for her. I'm sure. And I know that. And there was. And I knew some. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. not the point. It's like... It's, then they lose. There's a chance they'll never work in this charity, like this charity sector yeah. again because of what And people will be reluctant to give money to it because they think it's all run like that. So it just Absolutely. sets up the kind of... The fundamental point we're probably missing on all this is that we're both original sort of local authority kind of workers. A lot of these services were delivered by the council back in the day. Yeah. youth work and sport and because of the cuts a lot of people don't realize this when they dig out charities and i see it a lot and i get it the flip side to what i'm saying is that charities now fill the space that isn't filled by local authorities anymore and whether yeah. we like it or not in the age of austerity there's been a gap that's now been filled and i think when people are critical of what charities do and say well it should be run by the state it should be run. i'm like well of course it should but it isn't yeah, so yeah. what you know what are you going to do just sit and wait until it is or do something about it yeah um, and going back to your original question about seeing young people through I went, I almost gone on just now so Chris Stenner who, who headed up our education for many years now um, yeah. we've got Polly that's now but Chris is still obviously involved I know Chris sorry to just to jump in because I don't want it to just be an advert for Robin's Foundation he he is now what education head no, of no, education he, I think he's chief community officer so he's got chief he's a chief as well he, I knew he, him I knew him because I used to take kids from Eastern of Barton Hill 
over to Bristol City when Tommy Hutchinson, the former player, was the manager of the trust. And Chris was a 16-year-old apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> and now I see him. He's like six foot five and he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so, you, so I guess your point is you have living examples of people that have exactly come through and done that. Yeah, and, there, and there's nothing to say he, he won't be a CEO. He was, like I said, he's gone through the system. He didn't go to university. He went down a different avenue. And because of that, when he mm. started up the education program, he yeah. did it from a different, he didn't come from a university background. He came in to go, well, the reason I dropped out of school, I didn't want to go off because of this. So let's do things a little bit differently. So because yeah. he thought outside the box, he hates it when I call him the head, headmaster now, but he's like a headmaster sort of role because he, or he, he's sort of overseeing still the community as well as the education stuff now. So he he has gone through that way and he didn't do it the way you said originally. So if he did ever get to see it, it's the perfect model because he would have experienced every part of this organisation there is to yeah. experience. And just to be clear about that, what can happen is there are like post-16 college courses at Ashton Gate with the Roberts Foundation. You can also take an actual higher education degree now, can't you, at the football club? Yeah, and you can even do a qualification in esports. So you're computer based. So can yeah, you, really? yeah, so it's like, but again, that ten year old, my eleven year old would like that. Yeah, yeah, but because again, it's we use football as the hook. Now, it, obviously, the world is changing quite rapidly. So our esports model is basically similar to the football one, but it's come into a bit of computer gaming, a little bit about program, I think, in there, and then obviously do the B tech alongside it. So it's yeah. just another hook to get people involved in it. Which would, I guess, have... suit a type of young person that maybe doesn't fit into a traditional exactly. classroom. They like to be in a football class, a bit looser. They feel comfortable there, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's what Poly, Polly's brought on. Polly's obviously heading up the education stuff now. So he's going in different direction, but reflecting to what society needs, which is so important. So this, yeah. this prehistoric education programs run in big old grey buildings. You can see why kids yeah. wouldn't want to go there. So it is a... Yeah, well, yeah, and I've seen that a few times when you put the same kid who's failing in a, a school environment, in another environment, they flourish. That's right. So, it's, so maybe it's not the child. I think there's a whole another conversation about ultimate education, more adaptable and flexible to, to, to young people's needs. There's been some announcement of the new budget around youth services in the city. And there's been a decrease in the amount that's given out, which has caused a bit of hurrah by some sections of, um, there's a letter that's gone from all the youth organisations together. It's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because at the moment there is cuts everywhere and every sector doesn't want their sector to be cut. What, what, what would your sense be around statutory funding for youth services? Uh, you just can't rely on one. Yeah. Can't rely on one revenue funding. So, yeah. so, for example, we're going into the health area at the moment. We're going into the police, to the antisocial behaviour area. We're going into the council. You have to keep changing where y- your income's coming from, and that that takes hard work, and that does take chasing a lot of bids. And that's what the sport community foundations, I think, have managed to do a little bit more successfully than some of the dare I say some of the youth work charities. Um, yeah. because you can pivot because it's sport you can fit a health agenda you can fit a mental health agenda you can fit a community safety agenda a police yeah. agenda education we spoke about. there's lots of ways you can go and I think the likes of yourself Empire Fighting Chance Glossy Cricket this, you seem to have done that quite effectively to get yeah. a multitude of projects funded by so you're not just reliant on one thing so if that gets pulled then it doesn't all fall like a pack of cards. Yeah, yeah. And it is and it is the power and the privilege we've got in these lines of work. And I think I remember going to a, a conference once about money coming in and we, and I said we could run a, a football project. We'd get 60 kids every week turn up and we'd do one-to-one stuff with 15 of those kids. And yeah. there's a certain amount of money for the funding. And then a lady stood up and said, oh, we can do a motorbike project with three kids every week for six weeks. And you could run, yes, as much as 
football doesn't isn't for everyone, but you will mm. get your figures and you'll get your numbers and you'll work with a hell of a lot more by having yeah. football, boxing, rugby, sport plays such a powerful tool when it comes to engaging with communities. So yeah. it is, uh, you, you sort of understand from the funders point of view who they're going to fund, but you have to spread yourself thinly across a load of different organizations. And it, like I said, like you said, if we're doing a mentoring project, we could do it through health, we could do it through the police, we could do it for education. There's areas you can do it through, but you have to just think outside the box. What's coming up then, James? Anything big to keep our sort of eyes on the horizon for um, the Robbins Foundation? So, yeah, we've got loads of stuff. We've got our holiday projects. We're still running for free food, free football, join school holidays. Yeah. We've got our esports, our BTEC, our education programs running. And we've got our mentoring projects. We've got our kids in foster care. We've got a wealth of projects, our over 55s provision or yeah. Uh, yeah our, our fans in training which is a fitness program was that a dig at me then when you said that was uh, yeah, I was, I was trying, to, i've been saying it for a couple of yeah. years i've sent it to yeah. for our, uh, not yeah. long now it's not long till i can i can maybe join in slim to win is the project if it's yeah if is that another dig at me you've got i know you've got your dodgy knee haven't you slim, slim, slim yeah and another for you to come in we've got our over 55s walking football so you oh, okay this was your presence yet as you're now in that category but yeah well loads of stuff going on all right health projects. All right. So, yeah. yeah okay um james thank you ever so much for joining me today and good luck with everything you're doing and hopefully you'll get back in will you both will get back in the top 60 or top 40 cool people of bristol next year thanks mate appreciate that and um yeah keep giving people the voice mate it's much appreciated by the community yeah, I mean, I interrupt him most of the time. Don't like to be fair, but I suppose you let me. I like to give people. I like to give people a voice whilst giving myself one at the same time. That's what a lot of charities do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks. You love you. Bye bye. Bye bye bye. Many thanks to James Edwards for joining us on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, and we'll be back next week with a brand new guest and another fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>